If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to the book of Nehemiah, which is about one-third of the way through the Bible in the Old Testament. And we're still in our introduction, getting oriented to this great book of the Bible. And our text today comes from chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, then chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, and verses 17 through 20. Nehemiah prays, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then, even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Later on in chapter 2, he speaks to the king uh, in Persia, and he says, Then the king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried, so that I can rebuild it. And then down in verse 17, he speaks to the people there, disgraced in Jerusalem. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king said to me. They replied, Let's start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start Rebuilding. So far, the reading of God's Word. When I read a passage like that, it makes me an optimist. I'm an optimist about the church. What about you? I'm excited about what the future holds for the church of Jesus Christ. What about you? I want us to answer that question in each of our hearts today. 
Because what we learn in this passage is that even when things look bad, our new friend Nehemiah is confident and optimistic that God is on the move. And he can't wait to be a part of it. The walls are broken down. The people are in disgrace. Sanballat, the Horonite, is in their face mocking them. His heart is sad. He's facing the reality of how difficult the challenge is, and yet he is confident as he speaks to the king, and he's confident as he speaks to the people about what God wants to do. He is an optimist about the church. What about you? You know, when it comes to the worldwide church, I'm optimistic. We live in a day when the spark of the Holy Spirit is setting spiritual fire all over the planet. In Africa, there are approximately 350 million Christians. Christianity is spreading like wildfire across Africa. Soon there will be more Christians in Africa than there are Americans in the United States. In India, Around the year 2000, a team of missionary societies and church denominations got together. They set a bold plan in action to plant 350,000 new churches. This is 2013. It is estimated they're about halfway there in China. You know, in the 1940s, things were grim in China. Mao Zedong and the communists wanted to crush the life out of the church. And yet under his persecution, the church then grew from 1940 to, to 1980 to about 50 million people under the cruel hand of persecution. And though uh, persecution yet continues now since 1980, it is estimated that the church in China has tripled to 150 million people. What about South America? In the city of Bogota, we had someone from Colombia uh, in the church not long ago, John Simons. You're, some of you remember him. And in, in the city of Bogota, there is, uh, there's, there's been this growth of the evangelical church. There are about 250,000 Christians in the city of Bogota. The Holy Spirit is spreading the gospel like wildfire around the world. Now, what about in Western civilization, in Europe and America? Well, maybe that looks a little bit more like Nehemiah's situation. There was a book written by a non-Christian sociologist called The Death of Christian Britain, and it surveyed the Church of England from 1800 to about 1975. And as, as he discovered what was going on, the church had shrunk terribly. Uh, in around 1950, uh, over 55% of British citizens went to church on Sunday. Hmm. Today, it's less than 2%. And it's just as bad in Holland, in Germany, in Sweden, the church in the West really had its heart, its guts ripped out by World War II and the nihilistic philosophies in the universities, uh, postmodern thought that essentially teaches that this life is all there is. When you're dead, you're dead. That's the end. There is no God. 
And that has been popularized, and there's a kind of philosophical, spiritual darkness over Europe. Pockets of revival here and there, but essentially the church in Europe is dead. What about America? What we find uh, from the polling in uh, 2004 was a reliable poll that I had studied recently. It says that 17.7% of the population in America attends a Christian church of any kind, a Catholic, uh, mainline Protestant, or evangelical church. So that means four out of five people in America, including all of middle America, which we often think of as religious, four out of five people are not in church on a Sunday morning. And that includes Catholics, Orthodox, mainline liberal Protestants, as well as evangelicals. And then when you sort out the evangelical community of which we would be a part, those who love the authority of Scripture and who preach the doctrines of grace on Long Island, we find that there are less than 2%, probably closer to 1% of the population that would be worshiping together in a church family that believes the Bible and loves the doctrines of grace. So in macrocosm, I'm a real optimist around the world. The Spirit is moving. But I take my cue from my friend Nehemiah. Do you? Even if you're in a hard situation where the soil is, is really like cement and it's hard for the little seedlings of Christians to grow, nonetheless, I'm an optimist, and it doesn't bother me. Sure, Jerusalem may be in ruins. Sure, the walls may be torn down, and the philosophers of the age mock us. But I'm confident that Jesus Christ said, I will build my church. He said it, and I trust Him. I believe Him. You can't understand the book of Nehemiah unless you understand that statement of Jesus Christ. So, point number two, we want to be like Nehemiah. The church needs to be like Nehemiah. The leaders of the church need to be like Nehemiah. I'm preaching to myself this morning. Watch as I preach to me. But we, the church, need to be as Nehemiah was. And the first thing that he does is he looks back. He looks back at who God has revealed Himself to be and what He has done in establishing His covenants. And then Nehemiah also looks forward, and he embraces the reality of the prophecies that were given, and he is confident that he is to get his life on board with God's agenda. And that's what I want us to just think about for a few more minutes today, because this this is what Nehemiah does, and this is why he is confident and optimistic. He remembers. How many times does the Bible tell us to remember who God is? And we see this in his prayer, right in, uh, in chapter 1. I love this. How does he address God? O oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love. Where does this come from? Nehemiah does not have this sense of, well, I believe in the God that I imagine him to be. You ever hear people talk like that? Well, let me tell you about my God that I imagine God is like. 
Nehemiah would never do that. Nehemiah grounds his prayer in the revelation of God, God's self-disclosure from the book of Exodus, from the book of Deuteronomy. And, and he has learned from the book of Genesis that God is the creator of heaven and earth, that he is the God of heaven and the highest heavens. He has learned that God is the, the God who makes a covenant of love with his people because he knows how God revealed himself in the book of Exodus. And he understands that the prophets rail against those people who come to God using what the prophets call the vain imaginings of men. Speculation. Wow. God as he seems to me. Nehemiah would never do that. And you must never do that. I must never do that. The living and true God has revealed himself in history in his acts recorded for us in Scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit that describe the character of God, who he is, the living God. And, and we must understand this. We go back and we look. And we New Testament Christians, we are like Nehemiah. Nehemiah not only has the memory and the proper theology, good for him, but for Nehemiah it's personal. And I hope that for you, it's personal. Because as he punctuates his prayers through the book of Nehemiah, he says things like, my God and our God, it's personal. And for those of us on this side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christ who takes up residence in our hearts, it's personal. You must have that personal, real relationship with Jesus. And it must Fill your soul. Let him fill your soul. And he creates a spirit of wonder and awe, for he is the awesome God, Moses said, Nehemiah said. And he is the one who makes a covenant of love with you. And church leaders, church leaders, small group leaders, elders, Sunday school teachers, Teach the people about God. Parents, show your children who God is, the true God of the Bible, and model for them a personal faith in Jesus Christ our Lord, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, John 17, 3, For this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In this church, that's what we want to do. We want to know him. Now, the second thing Nehemiah does as he looks back is he looks back at the covenants. And whenever a preacher like me talks about the covenants, I tell you what happens. The screensaver goes up. <laughs> now, don't tune out here. This is very important Three-quarters of the Bible is the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is all about the covenants that God made with His people. And we need to understand that uh, this is a big deal in the Bible. What is a covenant? The covenant is simply the arrangement of the relationship that God has with His people. This binding relationship that God has with His people. And after Adam and Eve fell, instead of destroying us, He, he, he preserves the world as a theater for redemption, and then He chooses Abraham. He says, Abraham, I make a covenant with you and your posterity. 
and I will be your God, and you will be my people. And it is what we call the inauguration of the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace throughout the Bible has various administrations. You read through the history. It's one covenant of grace. Uh, But when we get to Moses and to the Israelites, then God enhances this covenantal arrangement with Israel. How does He do that? He sets Israel apart from the other nations. And He sets her in a special land flowing with milk and honey. It is like Eden again. Israel is called His son. And like Adam was his son, it's almost like Eden. And there's God in their midst, in the tabernacle and in the temple. God in their midst. But in that covenant that he established with Moses and the people at Mount Sinai, there are additional stipulations for obedience in order to stay in the land, right? You know that if you read through Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And Nehemiah is very keen on this. And his prayer in chapter 1 is actually quoting from Leviticus 26, verse 33. Now, you go back, just even before that, back in, bear with me here, don't let the screensaver go up. In Leviticus 25, 18, God says, be careful to obey my laws and you will live securely in the land. This is for national Israel. Nobody is saved by works. Every person who's saved is saved by grace, the covenant of grace. But for national Israel to stay in the land, they must keep the stipulations and decrees and laws of God. And uh, in Deuteronomy 28, verse 8, the Lord your God will bless you in the land He is giving you. But Nehemiah remembers what comes a little bit later. And he says to God, (laughs) remember God's always the one who says remember, now Nehemiah says to God, as if God would forget. Verse 8, Nehemiah 1, remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses. He's really saying, I'm remembering the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. And now in that very prayer, he is looking back and he's quoting from the covenantal stipulations in Leviticus 26 uh, and, and Deuteronomy 29, 28, where God says, if you disobey, I will scatter you among the nations and draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land, see it's about staying in the land, your land will be laid waste and your cities will lie in ruins. And in an agonized prayer, a prayer of agony, Nehemiah looks back and he says, and that's what's happened, and that's why I'm in Persia, in exile. But then, Nehemiah tracks with Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and what does he say in verse 9? He says, God, but remember what you said, Deuteronomy 30, verse 4, but if you return to me and obey my commands then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. He's praying this prayer right out of Deuteronomy 30, verse 4. And I will bring you back. I will gather you. And Nehemiah reminds God, who doesn't need reminding, That God saves His people. 
He redeems His people. Nehemiah knows Leviticus 26 verse 42 where God says, I will remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. And like Nehemiah, who remembers the covenants, we, on this side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we look back to the great inauguration of the new covenant, do you remember where Jesus did that? Does anyone remember? Where does Jesus talk about the new covenant? At the Last Supper, right? When he inaugurates the sacrament of communion, right? And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Do this, what? In remembrance of me. As Nehemiah remembers, you need to remember, I need to remember, we need to remember when Jesus establishes this. Don't forget. Don't forget. Why? Because the book of Hebrews 7 verse 22 says that Jesus Christ has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Bestowing greater blessings than ever before. And you and I know, pay attention here, you and I know what Nehemiah didn't yet quite know. You and I know that the faithful servant of Israel was still to come, you see. Nehemiah wasn't sure how all this is supposed to work out. But there is one to come who is the faithful servant of the Lord, the true Israel, the faithful Israel, who we are told in Galatians 4 verse 4 was born under the law to redeem those under the law. Who is that? Jesus Christ. And what we are told in the New Testament is that all of the law of the Old Testament was completely and perfectly obeyed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And all of the curses of the law were completely poured out upon that servant Israel, upon Jesus Christ. Do you see? The blessings were accomplished and won for God's people by the true and faithful Israel, Jesus Christ. The curses of the law that were to be poured out for disobedience fell upon Jesus Christ. And we look back to His death and we celebrate His resurrection and we live in the light of His blessings that He has given to us. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and, and, your Lord and Savior? If you do, the Bible says you are united with him in his death. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you are united with him in his resurrection. And you live. And eternal life is yours. Remember. But of course, Nehemiah looks forward. And what is so pregnant in these two chapters is this optimism and this confidence that he has. How does he know the future? <laughs> the circumstances are a mess. Well, somehow he has this deep sense that the prophecies, 
The prophecies of Jeremiah and the prophecies of Zechariah are coming true, even as he lives. Here you just, you need to remember the sermon from two weeks ago. Remember there's three expeditions back into the land, and the first one is led by this wonderful guy named Zerubbabel, right? And Zerubbabel leads the people back to build the temple again. <laughs> and it's rough, it's not easy, but they do it. But how in the world does, did, did that come about? A guy named Cyrus, King Cyrus, told them to go back. The Persians kicked the Babylonians far away, and, um, and the King Cyrus sends them back. Now, did you know, did you know that over a hundred years before Cyrus was born, the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Isaiah says, I'm sorry, it's Isaiah, says in chapter 44, verses 26 through 28, It says of Jerusalem that it shall once again be inhabited. Of the towns of Judah, they shall be built, and of their ruins, I will restore them. Verse 28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, Cyrus will say of Jerusalem, let Jerusalem be rebuilt and let its temple foundations be laid. He knows this prophecy, and he's seen the first part of it come to pass, and he has this sense that he is now to participate in the fulfillment of that prophecy. And, of course, along with Zerubbabel was this character, Zechariah. You can read his prophecy, his strange, marvelous prophecies in the book of Zechariah. But in in the midst of Zechariah, there's this prophecy um, that says in chapter 8, and you can see this in your bulletin on the back of your sermon outline. I love this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come, and the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, Let us go at once and entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty to entreat Him. This is what the Lord Almighty says in those days. Ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. And there's something awesome that's coming. The knowledge of the Lord, the knowledge of God is about to spread to the nations And Nehemiah wants to be a part of that destiny. It's really quite remarkable for middle-class Americans. I don't want to insult those of you who are upper-class Americans. Nehemiah was like the vice president of the United States. The cupbearer to the king was a trusted confidant. He's living in Persia in the city of Susa, 700 miles away. There's no airplanes. There's no trains. There's no automobiles. It's 700 miles of desert. From his cushy condo in Susa, 
And he cares about the city he's never been to that's in disgrace and its walls are torn down. (laughs) And yet, he says, living the Persian dream is not all there is. There is something better than living the Persian dream. And it is being a part of the destiny of the people of God and the building up of the church of God, the assembly of the people of God, caring for them, protecting them, nurturing them, building them up. He says, that is more important than protecting my little 401k here in Persia. Wow. And he can't wait to go. I hope I hear, I'm preaching to myself here, do you hear the voice of Jesus who says, I will build my church. And the nations, the nations will lay hold of the children of Abraham. All who believe in Jesus Christ are children of Abraham. Galatians 3.26 We are children of Abraham. And that's why there's 350 million believers in Africa, 150 million in China, 250,000 in Bogota, and it's growing and growing and growing around the world. The nations are coming. The prophecy is being fulfilled in a way that Nehemiah saw some cool things happen. But in the age of the Spirit, Jesus Christ is building His church with glory and with power. And now I just ask myself and I ask you, are you as eager to be a part of that as Nehemiah was to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? Well, I love how the people respond. I love how in chapter 2, Verse 18, the people overhear this conversation with Sanballat the Horonite and the, the Arab and the other guy who are mocking them, humiliating them. And Nehemiah says, the hand of our God is with us. Let us rebuild. And the people They say your line. What is your line this morning? You're sitting there. What is your line this morning? They say, let's start rebuilding. Are you an optimist? I hope you are. I'm so excited about what God is going to do on Long Island in the next 10, 15, 50, 100 years. God is going to touch this place. He's going to rebuild his church. You know, when are we going to plant the South Shore Community Church? When are we going to plant Mid-Island Community Church? Every month, I gather together with some of the church planters on the island. I've told you about this. Michael Kitka in Forest Hills and Mark Middlecoff out in, in, uh, in, in uh, Southampton. And there's two Baptist churches, They're the, the, these young pastors who are planting their church. And they, they come and join with me because I've had a few more hard knocks than they have. These young guys, Dan Olson is planting a church in East Meadow. And J.O. is replanting a church down in, in Belmore. And... and And we get together and we get on our knees and we pray and we study God's word and we say, what is God going to do? 
And I serve on the, see, I, I'm so fortunate, I serve on the missions committee of our presbytery. I get to be alongside those young men and their wives who are planting churches all across North Jersey and the five boroughs and Queens and Brooklyn and Long Island. I'm confident. I'm optimistic. God is doing great things. What about you? Your line. Your line this morning. With God's help. Let's start rebuilding. Let's do it together. Let's pray. Our Father, how we thank you First, for the example of Nehemiah, who points us to the great covenant keeper, Jesus Christ, whose obedience lived the life we should have lived, and whose death died the death we should have died. But death could not hold this innocent one, and he burst from the tomb victorious. O oh Lord! Now come, come around the world to China and India and South America, to Europe and Britain and to North America and build your church. But come, Lord, to Long Island, we pray. In these next weeks, as we study Nehemiah and we speak concretely about the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem and building your church. Come, Lord, we are ready to take up the trowel and the sword. We are ready to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we are ready to build. Who are we? We are nobody. But you are the great and awesome God, the God who hears, the God who sees, the God who loves his people. And we celebrate you. Come, and help your people, we pray and we sing now. In Jesus' name, amen.